Obadiah may have worn a face mask. We don't know. I mean, it's possible. We don't know much about him, and he seems to be relatively invisible, unrecognizable in the scope of history, largely forgotten apart from this book. We don't know many details about him. We don't know what he looked like. We don't know where he came from. There are all kinds of question marks about him. He was a drop in the ocean of humanity, a blip on the radar of God's people. But his message is precious. He has the shortest book, as we said, of the Old Testament. It's just 292 words. And it's a package wrapped up in language of judgment and condemnation. But when the present is opened, it's a gift of comfort and hope. See, Obadiah is prophesying to a people in a day of great sadness. This is, a, this is a generation of sadness after generations of sadness. So where are we in the history, the story of God's people? They had come into the promised land. They had conquered the promised land. They had settled there. The land had been divided up. Kingship had been established. There was David and Solomon in the glory days of the kingdom. But we're several hundred years removed from that now. And the sin of God's people has brought the judgment of God on them. So in 722 BC, the northern kingdom, Israel, was taken captive into Assyria and they never returned. The southern kingdom, the southern part of the people of Israel in Judah, had another 120 years or so to repent, but they did not. And so judgment was now brought on them as well, this time through the Babylonians who conquered the capital city, Jerusalem, by besieging it for years and inflicting terrible suffering on the people of God. In the span of time from about 605 B.C. to 586 B.C., There were successive raids and departures, series of exiles, God's people being taken away into the land of Babylon for a period of 70 years of exile. It was a period of unprecedented suffering in the history of God's people. So Obadiah writes this book, this word of prophecy, to God's people in a day of sadness. Interestingly enough, it's written for God's people. It's written for the Hebrew Bible, and yet it does not address the Israelite people. It addresses another nation who presumably would never even read this book. It addresses the Edomites. That requires a bit of background detail that you may or may not know. Here's a little refresher. If you rewind in the history of God's people about 1,200 years, you find a couple of babies wrestling in a womb. They're fighting from the time before they were born. Jacob and Esau wrestling in the womb. And there's a prophecy that the older shall serve the younger, that God has set his love on the younger, the secondborn who is born. Jacob is born clutching Esau's heel. And there is contention between them, which eventually, kind of like sibling rivalries often do, settles down into to just you live over there and we'll live over here. And the people of Israel settle in the promised land and the descendants of Esau became the nation of Edom that we're reading about here and live just to the east. They're the neighbors of Israel, for the most part, friendly neighbors. It's like having cousins who live in your neighborhood, but maybe they're not your favorite cousins. So it's like, 
You don't want your kids to marry their kids or anything like that when that was normal back then. But like, um, you, you know, you're not that tight. But you know, if your house gets robbed, they're probably not the first people you're suspecting because you're allies. You've got family history together. You are, by and large, friends. They're not going to harm you. But isn't it often the worst wounds that are inflicted by those you least suspect of being against you? If you're going to stab someone in the back, you've got to be close to them in the first place in order to do it, right? Human experience tells us that the, the most painful wounds we experience are often the ones that come from the sources we least expect and the people that are closest to us. See, Babylon came against Jerusalem. They came against the people of Judah. And you kind of expect that. They're a world power on the rise. Of course, they're trying to establish themselves. Of course, they're coming against the people of Israel. Of course, we understand that. We expect that. But Edom, somewhere along the way, saw the political tides turning, saw that it was to their advantage to saddle up with Babylon against the Jewish people. And so as we read in the book, the reality was that the Edomites joined in plundering the people of Judah. They mocked them. They belittled them. They increased their suffering. Even the refugees, the fugitives who were fleeing from the siege, the Edomites found them, got them, and turned them over to the Babylonians who were pursuing them. And when you're Judah and you're suffering, powerless, without an ally or a friend in the world, without a voice or any recourse for appeal, you feel absolutely and utterly alone. Even your family, the family of nations around you turn against you. This is the experience of human suffering embodied by a nation, right? If you have suffered... If you are suffering, if you are enduring sadness, anxiety, fear, opposition, in the midst of it, you feel alone, you feel discouraged, and in our darkest moments, we feel like even our friends, even our family, even our church, even God himself has forgotten and forsaken, and I am alone. Obadiah says to you, comfort, comfort my people. Because he's going to tell us about our God. First of all, he's, he says this, you should be comforted. You should know comfort because our God sees. Our God sees. Now, how you feel about someone seeing you kind of depends on your relationship with them, right? I have uh, uh, teenage boys that randomly wander into my house and stay for long periods of time. And so sometimes I'll tell them, I'm watching you, right? I hope that has some kind of impact in what they're about to do, like what they're planning to do and how they're planning on talking to my daughters that they've come over to see. I'm watching you. I see you. 
You know, I, I know where you hide. It might be a little creepy. On the other hand, if I say to my wife, I've got eyes only for you, babe. I'm watching, I, I see you. Oh, that's a different connotation, right? All of a sudden, the, the relationship sets that up a little bit differently. Like, like my kids are sleeping at night and I can go in and check on them before I go to bed and they're, they're so precious and peaceful and I sometimes watch them for a few minutes just to look at them and gaze on them and I, I love them and they're, they're so peaceful. But if you like fall asleep on the TTC on your commute one day and you wake up and there's a stranger just staring at you, that's a whole different ball game, right? Like it is, it is a weird thing. God sees. That's not always good news. For the Edomites, this is really bad news, right? The Edomites who had set their hearts on evil. See, this book denounces them for their actions, the evil that they committed, the violence that they committed against God's people. But it goes beyond the mere outward actions. It's like God sees with x-ray vision behind, underneath the skin, into the heart to describe what's going on below the surface. Below the surface, they were proud. Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and your lofty dwelling who say in your heart, who bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like, e like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down. <laughs> the higher you exalt yourself as you set yourself up against God, the further you have to fall when he cuts you down. This is important for you to understand if you are not one of God's people, if you are not one of his children, if you are not part of his kingdom, he does not merely judge you for your outward actions. In his courtroom, he needs no witnesses, no further evidence. He has seen your heart. He knows your pride your contempt for others, your love of self, your contending for supremacy with him. He knows that in your heart you desire nothing more than to remove him off his throne, maybe put him to somewhere where you can use him sometime, but realistically you want to be on the throne. He knows that you've set yourself up against him and he will cut you down. He sees your actions. He sees your heart. But for the people of Israel, knowing that God sees actually is a comforting reality. Look again at verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. God's going to address his people with a word regarding Edom who were inflicting suffering on his people. God sees your suffering. Edom had inflicted suffering in ways that seemed to the people of Israel like it was invisible, like no one knew and there could be no justice. But God addresses it. Verse 10, he says this, 
Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that, your, that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. The watchful eye of God is never turned away from his people. Even in the worst moments of your suffering. Even when no one else sees. Look at how the word continues. Verse 12. Again to Edom. Take, take note of how this is described. Do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Don't rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Don't boast in the day of distress. Don't enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Don't gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Here, here's the thing we should note about that. No no one else saw that. If you go back and you read through the history of God's people in the Bible, there is no account of this taking place. If you read through the historical records of the nations surrounding Israel at this point in time, in this point in history, there are no other records of Edom turning against Israel in this way together with the Babylonians. There is no record of this. It is invisible. It is lost to history. History has turned a blind eye to the suffering of this generation of God's people. They were so small. They were so insignificant that no one even bothered to write it down or to remember it. History turns a blind eye, but our God sees. It was not important to the big political machinations of the nations warring and rebelling and turning against God. They didn't care what Edom did with the people of Jerusalem. But Obadiah says God sees. He sees your suffering and he will make it right. He will restore. Obadiah says to these people, the people of Israel, no matter the nation, no matter the secrecy, no matter the betrayal, he says to us, no matter who knows, no matter who remembers, no matter who believes you, no matter who understands, our God has seen your tears, Psalm 56 says, are precious. They are kept in a bottle. He knows. You are seen. Your suffering is recorded. And he will restore to you all that has been lost. Be comforted, people of God. Our God sees Here's the glorious thing. He, he's, not, he's not just some innocent bystander who happens to be there. Oh, I saw something happen. He's, he's not standing there throwing up his hands saying, what can I do? When our God sees, our God Speaks. Here's a second reason why Obadiah says we should be comforted as God's people is this. Our God speaks 
And his, his words, his words matter. His words matter so much. They matter so much more than my words. I'm never more aware of this than like, you know, at the dinner table where we've got all these, you know, again, just my wife being hospitable and making great food. We have random children from the neighborhood sitting around our table and there is chaos. And so I try to speak order into the chaos and I try to say, hey guys, listen, one person talk at a time. I try to enforce rules like let's be polite. And I try to speak into the chaos, but the chaos overwhelms. The the light of my voice is overwhelmed by the darkness. But God's, God's words are not like mine. For God to speak is to do. His words are effectual. They accomplish his purpose. Obadiah wants to remind us that this is the word of the Lord. In verse 4, he says, this is what declares the Lord. In verse 8, he says again, declares the Lord. In verse 18, this climactic word, and then he says, the Lord has spoken. He is emphasizing for us that God has seen the situation. He will not leave it unaddressed. He has spoken to it. Something will be done. And when God speaks, he speaks as one who is sovereign over the nations. He addresses the nations, not as a peer, not as someone pleading with the kings of the world to please be merciful to my people. He speaks as one who reigns over all creation. Verse one, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. He was not the God of Edom. They had their own gods. He doesn't care. He speaks over them and declares what their future would be because he is the God of all nations. Look at how it continues. We've heard a report from Yahweh, the God of Israel, the covenantal God of Israel, Yahweh by name. We've heard a report from him, and a messenger has been sent where? Among the nations, not just to Israel, among the nations. He speaks over the affairs of every country, over every political movement, over every opposition. And he says this, rise up, let us rise up against her for battle. It is not just Edom, it is all the nations. Verse 2, behold, I will make you, Edom, small among the nations. Among the nations, small means he also has control over what nations will be big and what nations will destroy Edom. God reigns not just over Edom, but over all the nations. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord, which we, we've heard about the day of the Lord so far, right? It, In Hosea and Joel and Amos, this coming day of the Lord, when God draws near to his people, this climactic day, when God draws near to finally accomplish his purposes in judgment and in salvation, the day of the Lord is coming not just upon his people, but upon all the nations. It's a day of judgment. He says, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. It's really important that you understand that as God speaks in this moment to this people and to these nations, he's speaking what will come to pass now, but he's already told us this. See, if you rewind in time from Obadiah, I know it's like a lot of history, but I think it's really important. 900 years from before Obadiah writes this, Moses on a mountain, is writing, he's recording words 
in the first five books of the Bible, in the, the Torah, the law, the instruction that he gives to the people as their covenantal documents, the foundation documents for how they're to live. And at the end of all of it, in Deuteronomy 32, he records a song that tells the people of Israel so they don't forget, this is what your future will look like. 900 years before the time of Obadiah, before Edom revolts against them, before Babylon comes against them, this is what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 32, beginning in verse 29. If they, if the nation nations who've come against you, the nations who have conquered you, the nations who chased you and you scattered, if they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord, Yahweh, had given them up? For their rock, the rock of the nations, is not like our rock, not like Yahweh. Our enemies are by themselves. They have no real God to help them. So how is it that they could put the people of Israel to flight? Only if the God of Israel had sold his people. If he was bringing the judgment that he had promised, the covenantal curses that he told them would come if they lived in rebellion against him. So what's going to happen? See, see, Moses is predicting God's people will be unfaithful and the enemy nations will come against them and they'll put them to flight and they'll take them into exile. So does that mean that this injustice will be left as it is? Deuteronomy 20, or 32 verse 35, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity. Their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly for the Lord. Yahweh will vindicate his people. He'll have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and that there is none remaining bond or free. When he has visited judgment on his people, the covenantal curses that he promised, then he will turn around and judge the nations who came against his people and restore his people. Verse 39 of Deuteronomy 32, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There's none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword, my hand takes hold on judgment. I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from their long-haired heads of their enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. 900 years before Obadiah records the, word of the God, records the word of God, God had already spoken. Obadiah says the God who has spoken is still speaking. The God who has spoken and is accomplishing his purposes will accomplish his purpose. That's why we've gone into exile, because we have been an unfaithful people. But here's the good news. He's a faithful God. He will keep his word. He will not abandon us. He will restore us. You should know this by now. If you're reading in Obadiah, you should have started at Genesis all the way at the beginning. And do you remember what we learned about our God from the very 
beginning, he said, let there be light. And there was light. He speaks. And even what doesn't exist somehow obeys him and begins to exist. When our God speaks, he accomplishes all his purposes. We, we know this, right? This is precious truth, right? If you're a Christian, think about this. The same God who said, let there be light, and there was light, hung on a cross and said, it is finished. Guys, this is our hope. Our God sees us lost, hopeless, alone. He enters into our reality in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who takes our sin in his body, who goes to the cross, who bears the wrath of God for us. And as he hangs on the cross, says, it is finished, so that everyone who puts their trust in him can know that the days of judgment have Past and the days of restoration are coming, but there still requires still requires a decision from you. Are you one of his people? Have you put your trust in him? Because there is another day coming when you will stand before his throne and he will say to some of you, depart from me, I never knew you. Irreversible words that our God speaks that cannot be undone, that accomplish for eternity your fate. Are you right with him? If you are, there are different words that you will hear. On the day of restoration, when we see Jesus glorified on his throne, he will declare these words. He will speak and it will come to pass. Behold, I am making all things new. Every tear wiped away, every injustice set right, everything that is crooked in this life straightened, death and the curse and sin and all its wretched effects forever undone and restored because our God says so. Here is comfort. Here is comfort for the people of God. Our God speaks. He has spoken a promise. If we see that he is a God who speaks all creation into existence, we hear that he is a God who says our sin is finished. We hear that he is a God who will say to us, all things will be made new. Here is comfort. Comfort for us in our suffering. Lastly, Obadiah says this. We should be comforted because our God saves. This is is the ramification, right? If he sees us and he speaks to our reality to restore all things, he saves. He saves. Now, that doesn't mean he saves in the way that we think he will. His ways are often so counterintuitive. Like... Like, I'm, I'm often amazed living with 
women. Things, things get done differently than I think they're going to get done. This is, a, this is a remarkable thing. So, so my wife, she's, she's like homemaker extraordinaire. But like one of the things that amazes me is she'll say, I'm going to clean. And I'm like, okay, that's my cue to get out of here because I don't know how this happens. So I, I like, I try to clear, clear, I try to get out of her way. So, but like what happens is sometimes she'll be cleaning and I'll come back and she's not, <laughs> she's not done yet. And I'm like, what is going on? There's, st- it looks like all our cupboards and everything have vomited. There's stuff everywhere. There's stuff out. It looks like, how did this turn into a, it looks like my, like landmines have gone off. Like it's a disaster. How is this cleaning? But by the time she's done, it looks better than it ever did before. It's incredible. The ways that she works, I do not understand. Her ways are higher than my ways. It is incredible. But, but, listen, but, but, but she gets it done. And this is, this is the reality. When God saves, when we say God saves, that does not mean everything goes the way we think it will in the here and now. But if we trust him, if he's wise, if he's good, we trust him to accomplish his salvation in his own way, which means he saves through judgment. There is no perfect world and there is no happy ending as long as evil continues to exist and those who hate him continue to live. Salvation for his people means that his enemies will be destroyed. Verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau, that's, that's the capital, that's the stronghold of Edom, will be cut off by slaughter. Verse 16. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau, by contrast, shall be stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Salvation for his people means destruction of their enemies. Don't miss the dividing line. It's easy to read this and think the dividing line is is national identity. It's what family you're born into. It's what ethnicity you are. It's never been about that. There were countless thousands of the Israelites, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, who suffered the same fate of the judgment of God. It's about whether your heart is given to him, whether you are one of his people. If you are not part of his people, if your hope is not in him, if you have not aligned yourself with him as your king, then you will be judged as part of the salvation of God's people. Verse 17, but in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. In God's people there will be those who escape. And it shall be 
holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Verse 20, the exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of Negeb. You don't need to know those places. All you need to notice here is simply this. It is the exiles of this host. It is those who have escaped. It is the exiles of Jerusalem. Even God's people, when they are saved, are saved through judgment. They're saved out of judgment. They're saved as those who have been delivered through the judgment of God because judgment must come for sin. We understand that this side of the cross. We also understand that when God saves, Obadiah says he saves through human saviors. Verse 21, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. The history of God's people is full of this, right? Individual human saviors who come to deliver God's people for a time. Whether it is Noah or Joseph or Moses or David or Solomon or so many others who deliver God's people, who bring them peace for a period of time, but then they all die. All of them are like individual notes coming together to make a tune, to make a melody, to make a, a chord or a harmony, to, to fill in a beautiful song, to the colors that, that make a dynamic, beautiful picture, a portrait of the one human Savior who is to come, Jesus, who by his death delivers his people and lives to make intercession for them always. Obadiah is say, saying to us, there is a human Savior who will come and he will save. And when he works, he saves through judgment. He saves through human saviors and he saves, he saves into a kingdom. Look at verse 21 again. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Every nation and every part of creation over all the earth will be the kingdom of our God. There's got to be hope. There's got to be comfort for us in this hope. In the midst of our suffering, even if we feel alone, isolated, unseen, people don't believe, people don't get it, those close to me have turned against me, it feels like God doesn't see. There must be hope that gives comfort in this reality. There is a kingdom coming where Yahweh alone reigns, where Jesus is seated on the throne. There is no more elections. There's no more Twitter with political conspiracy theories. There's no more nation warring against nation, but all people only ever and always worship Jesus alone exalted as king. And there is justice and righteousness. There is mercy and love to every corner of the earth. The kingdom of our God will come. And in that day, it will not be that he only sees us, but we too will then see him. We will hear his voice, and friends, listen, we will respond with song. Untainted by sadness, unstrained by sorrow, surrounded by people who see us and know us and love us with every wrong set right, we will worship our God. The God of Obadiah has spoken. He sees you. 
He has not forgotten you. Your suffering is known to him. He speaks to it. He has spoken to it. He will speak and accomplish all his purposes. For now, Obadiah speaks to us. It says, comfort. Comfort, my people. Let's pray.